0: Chapter 33, Part 2 of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Illich. Chapter 33 Conquest of Africa by the Vandals. Part 2 By the skill of Boniface, and perhaps by the ignorance of the Vandals, the siege of Hippo was protracted above fourteen months. The sea was continually open, and when the adjacent country had been exhausted by a regular rapine, the besiegers themselves were compelled by famine to relinquish their enterprise. The importance and danger of Africa were deeply felt by the regent of the West. Placidia implored the assistance of her eastern ally, and the Italian fleet and army were reinforced by Asper who sailed from Constantinople with a powerful armament. As soon as the force of the two empires were united under the command of Boniface, he boldly marched against the Vandals, and the loss of the second battle irretrievably decided the fate of Africa. He embarked with the precipitation of despair, and the people of Hippo were permitted, with their families and effects, to occupy the vacant place of the soldiers, the greatest part of whom were either slain or made prisoners by the Vandals the count whose fatal credulity had wounded the vitals of the republic might enter the palace of ravenna with some anxiety which was soon removed by the smiles of Placidia. boniface attempted with gratitude the rank of patrician and the dignity of master-general of the roman armies but he must have blushed at the sight of those medals in which he was represented with the name and attributes of victory The discovery of his fraud, the displeasure of the empress, and the distinguished favor of his rival, exasperated the haughty and perfidious soul of Aedius. He hastily returned from Gaul to Italy with a retinue, or rather with an army, of barbarian followers, and such was the weakness of the government, that the two generals decided their private quarrel in a bloody battle. Boniface was successful, but he received in the conflict a mortal wound from the spear of his adversary of which he expired within a few days in such christian and charitable sentiments that he exhorted his wife a rich heiress of spain to accept Aetius for her second husband but adius could not derive any immediate advantage from the generosity of his dying enemy he was proclaimed a rebel by the justice of placidia and though he attempted to defend some strong fortresses erected on his patrimonial estate The imperial power soon compelled him to retire into Pannonia. To the tents of his faithful Huns, the Republic was deprived, by their mutual discord, of the service of her two most illustrious champions. It might naturally be expected, after the retreat of Boniface, that the Vandals would achieve without resistance or delay the conquest of Africa. Eight years, however, elapsed from the evacuation of Hippo to the reduction of Carthage. In the midst of that interval, the ambitious Genseric in the full tide of apparent prosperity negotiated a treaty of peace, by which he gave his son Huneric for hostage, and consented to leave the western emperor in the undisturbed possession of the three Mauritanias. This moderation, which cannot be imputed to the justice, might be ascribed to the policy of the conqueror. His throne was encompassed with domestic enemies, who accused the baseness of his birth and asserted the legitimate claims of his nephews, the sons of Gunderic. These nephews, indeed, he sacrificed to his safety, and their mother, the widow of the deceased king, was precipitated, by his order, into the river Epsaga. But the public discontent burst forth in dangerous and frequent conspiracies, and the warlike tyrant is supposed to have shed more vandal blood by the hand of the executioner than in the field of battle. The convulsions of africa which had favored his attack opposed the firm establishment of his power and the various seditions of the moors and germans the donatists and catholics continually disturbed or threatened the unsettled reign of the conqueror as he advanced towards carthage he was forced to withdraw his troops from the western provinces the sea coast was exposed to the naval enterprises of the romans of spain and italy and in the heart of numidia the strong inland city of Corda still persisted in obstinate independence. These difficulties were gradually subdued by the spirit, the perseverance, and the cruelty of Genseric, who alternately applied the arts of peace and war to the establishment of his African kingdom. He subscribed a solemn treaty with the hope of deriving some advantage from the term of its continuance and the moment of its violation. The vigilance of his enemies was relaxed by the protestations of friendship, which concealed his hostile approach, and Carthage was at length surprised by the Vandals five hundred and eighty-five years after the destruction of the city and republic by the younger Scipio. A new city had arisen from its ruins with the title of a colony, and though Carthage might yield the royal prerogatives of Constantinople, and perhaps to the trade of Alexandria or the splendor of Antioch, she still maintained the second rank in the west as the Rome, if we may use the style of contemporaries, of the African world. That wealthy and opulent metropolis displayed, in a dependent condition, the image of a flourishing republic. Carthage contained the manufacturers, the arms, and the treasures of the six provinces. A regular subordination of civil honors gradually ascended from the procurators of the streets and quarters of the city to the tribunal of the supreme magistrate, who with the title of proconsul represented the state and dignity of a consul of ancient Rome schools and gymnasia were instituted for the education of the African youth, and the liberal arts and manners, grammar, rhetoric, and philosophy, were publicly taught in the Greek and Latin languages. The buildings of Carthage were uniform and magnificent. A shady grove was planted in the midst of the capital. The new port, a secure and capacious harbor, was subservient to the commercial industry of citizens and strangers, and the splendid games of the circus and theatre were exhibited almost in the presence of the barbarians. The reputation of the Carthaginians was not equal to that of their country, and the reproach of Punic faith still adhered to their subtle and faithless character. The habits of trade and the abuse of luxury had corrupted their manners, but their impious contempt of monks and the shameless practice of a natural lust are the two abominations which excite the pious vehemence of Salvian, the preacher of the age the king of the vandals severely reformed the vices of a voluptuous people and the ancient noble ingenuous freedom of carthage these expressions of victor are not without energy was reduced by genseric into a state of ignominious servitude after he had permitted his licentious troops to satiate their rage and avarice instituted a more regular system of rapping and oppression an edict was promulgated which enjoined all persons without fraud or delay to deliver their gold silver jewels and valuable furniture or apparel to the royal officers and the attempt to secrete any part of their patrimony was inexorably punished with death and torture as an act of treason against the state the lands of the proconsular province which formed the immediate districts of carthage were accurately measured and divided among the barbarians in the conqueror reserve for his peculiar domain the fertile territory of bisectium and the adjacent plains of numidia and getulia it was natural enough that ginseric should hate those whom he had injured the nobility and the senators of carthage were exposed to his jealousy and resentment and all those who refused the ignominious terms which their honor and religion forbade them to accept were compelled by the aryan tyrant to embrace the condition of perpetual banishment rome italy and the provinces of the east were filled with a crowd of exiles of fugitives and of ingenuous captives who solicited the public compassion and the benevolent epistles of Theodoret still preserve the names and misfortunes of celestian and maria the syrian bishop deplores the misfortune of celestian who from the state of a noble and opulent senator of carthage was reduced with his wife and family and servants to beg his bread in a foreign country but he applauds the resignation of the christian exile and the philosophic temper which under the pressure of such calamity could enjoy more real happiness than was the ordinary lot of wealth and prosperity the story of maria the daughter of the magnificent student is singular and interesting in the sack of Carthage she was purchased from the Vandals by some merchants of Syria, who afterwards sold her as a slave in their native country. A female attendant, transported in the same ship and sold in the same family, still continued to respect a mistress whom fortune had reduced to the common level of servitude. And the daughter of Edoman received from her grateful affection the domestic services which she had once required from her obedience. This remarkable behavior divulged the real condition of maria who in the absence of the bishop of cyrus was redeemed from slavery by the generosity of some soldiers of the garrison the liberality of Theodoret provided for her decent maintenance and she passed ten months among the deaconesses of the church till she was unexpectedly informed that her father who had escaped from the ruin of carthage exercised an honorable office in one of the western provinces her filial impatience was seconded by the pious bishop theodoret and a letter still extant recommends Maria to the bishop of Aege a maritime city of Cilicia which was frequented during the annual fair by the vessels of the west most earnestly requesting that his colleague would use the maiden with a tenderness suitable to her birth and that he would entrust her to the care of such faithful merchants as would esteem it a sufficient gain if they restored a daughter lost beyond all human hope to the arms of her afflicted parent among the insipid legends of ecclesiastical history i am tempted to distinguish the memorable fate of the seven sleepers whose imaginary date corresponds with the reign of the younger theodosius and the conquest of africa by the vandals when the emperor decius persecuted the christians seven noble youths of Ephesus concealed themselves in a spacious cavern in the side of an adjacent mountain, where they were doomed to perish by the tyrant, who gave orders that the entrance should be firmly secured by a pile of huge stones. They immediately fell into a deep slumber, which was miraculously prolonged without injuring the powers of life, during a period of one hundred and eighty-seven years. At the end of that time the slaves of Adelus, to whom the inheritance of the mountain had descended, removed the stones to supply materials for some rustic edifice the light of the sun darted into the cavern and the seven sleepers were permitted to awake after a slumber as they thought of a few hours they were pressed by the calls of hunger and resolved that jamblichus one of their number should secretly return to the city to purchase bread for the use of his companions the youth if we may still employ that appellation could no longer recognize the once-familiar aspect of his native country, and his surprise was increased by the appearance of a large cross triumphantly erected over the principal gate of Ephesus. His singular dress and obsolete language confounded the baker, to whom he offered an ancient medal of Decius as the current coin of the empire. And Jumplicus, on the suspicion of a secret treasure, was dragged before the judge, Their mutual inquiries produced the amazing discovery, that two centuries were almost elapsed since Jamblichus and his friends had escaped from the rage of a pagan tyrant. The bishop of Ephesus, the clergy, the magistrates, the people, and, it is said, the emperor Theodosius himself, hastened to visit the cavern of the Seven Sleepers, who bestowed their benediction, related their story, and at the same instant peaceably expired. The origin of this marvelous fable cannot be ascribed to the pious fraud and credulity of the modern Greeks, since the authentic tradition may be traced within a half a century of the supposed miracle. James of Sarug, a Syrian bishop who was born only two years after the death of the younger Theodosius, had devoted one of his 230 homilies to the praise of the young men of Ephesus. Their legend, before the end of the sixth century, was translated from the Syriac into the Latin language by the care of Gregory of Tours. The hostile communions of the East preserve their memory with equal reverence, and their names are honorably inscribed in the Roman, the Abyssinian, and the Russian calendar. Nor has their reputation been confined to the Christian world. This popular tale, which Mahomet might learn when he drove his camels to the fairs of Syria, is introduced as a divine revelation into the Qur'an. The story of the Seven Sleepers has been adopted and adorned by the nations, from Bengal to Africa, who profess the Mahometian religion, and some vestiges of a similar tradition have been discovered in the remote extremities of Scandinavia. This easy and universal belief, so expressive of the sense of mankind, may be ascribed to the genuine merit of the fable itself we imperceivably advance from youth to age, without observing the gradual but incessant change of human affairs. And even in our larger experience of history the imagination is accustomed, by a perpetual series of causes and effects, to unite the most distant revolutions. But if the interval between two memorable areas could be instantly annihilated, if it were possible, after a momentary slumber of two hundred years, To display the new world to the eyes of the spectator, who still retained a lively and recent impression of the old, his surprise and his reflections would furnish the pleasing subject of a philosophical romance. The scene could not be more advantageously placed, than in the two centuries which elapsed between the reigns of Decius and Theodosius the Younger. During this period, the seat of government had been transported from Rome to a new city on the banks of the Thracian Bosphorus, and the abuse of military spirit had been suppressed by an artificial system of tame and ceremonious servitude. The throne of the persecuting Decius was filled by a secession of Christian and Orthodox princes, who had extirpated the fabulous gods of antiquity and the public devotion of the age was impatient to exalt the saints and martyrs of the Catholic Church on the altars of Diana and Hercules. The union of the Roman Empire was dissolved, its genius was humbled into the dust, and armies of unknown barbarians, issuing from frozen regions of the north, had established their victorious reign over the fairest provinces of Europe and Africa. End of chapter 33, part 2.